So hello everyone. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Dietrich Volrath. He is a professor of economics at the University of Houston and serves as chair of that department beginning uh, this past fall, 2019. His research focuses on economic growth and has appeared in the Review of Economic Studies, Journal of Economic Growth, Journal of Development Economics, and the American Economic Journal, Microeconomics, among others. Um, He's also a past recipient of the Ross Lentz Teaching Award and is the co-author of a popular textbook, Introduction to Economic Growth, and has a new book, which I am excited to get into and uh, release this year, Fully Grown, Why a Stagnant Economy is a Sign of Success. There you go. All right. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, Doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. So, I guess first off, as I was reading that, is it economics, economics? Is it kind of data, data? <laughs> uh, I think it's a data, data situation. I okay. Go Do you way. prefer one or the other? I don't want to hurt your Honestly, ears. you got me. I haven't, don't think I've thought about that one yet. So <laughs> I, now I'm going to be all self-conscious about it. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, thanks for being here. Sure. So I definitely want to talk about things that are kind of current, but I also want to kind of start with your book and your thought process. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. it, it seems like you're saying that you don't need massive, massive growth or to necessarily be the pulse of a successful economy. Yeah, no, I think, I I mean, I think you, you phrase that correctly, right? It's, uh, the book came out, it came out in January. Um, so, and it was great. I was really happy. And then the (laughs) pandemic hits, the economy tanks, (laughs) it's like 20 million people out of work. And I'm like, that's not what I meant. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you really did. Like, I really, really didn't mean it like that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely this kind of like, well, let's think about things a little more long run and, and not worry about the pandemic exactly. But but yeah, I, I think the one of the the points of the book was that the growth rate of GDP or GDP per cap, the growth rate of GDP per capita is just not necessarily the the measure of how well the economy is doing, right? So it's definitely grows at a slower rate than it used to, right? So if you just look at the 20th century versus the 21st, right? And split it up that way, then the growth rate in the 21st century uh, on a per capita basis is like one and a quarter points faster than it is. So it was about two and a quarter percent per year in the 20th century. It's about 1% per year now, was up to the pandemic. And honestly, it'll get back to about 1% per year in a couple. I mean, it's, there's a lot of structural stuff built in. So that, but that's a big distinct drop in the growth rate, right? And it's you know, worried a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And it worried me. I mean, I started that book project thinking, trying to come up with an explanation about why. And in my head, I had these, these kind of culprits in mind that would explain it. And as you really dig through it, most of that is due to the fact that in the 20th century, Growth was really boosted by the fact that really the baby boom generation kind of flooded into the labor market uh, with a lot of education relative to their, you know, their uh, parents' generation and generated this huge burst in growth kind of in the middle and the late 20th century. And now they're exiting the labor force and that's started to put a big drag on growth now because the baby boomers were a huge generation who didn't have kids at the same pace, right? And so we're kind of in this weird demographic lag. Um, and so there's, there's nothing, you know, no one kind of was like deliberately decided to do this. They just, the baby boomers, you know, came into the world at a, at a time. <laughs> did all they could. Yeah. And did, they, they, they hit the workforce, but then they made all sorts of different decisions, right? About family size and, and work uh, and marriage and things than any generation before them. And, and if you kind of think about it or look back at it, you, you'd say all those things were, well, if you put it this way, those are things you wouldn't want to give up, I'd argue, right? So they hit the labor force in the, starting in the 60s, into the 70s, you've got what? You have the advent of the pill, um, which gives women a huge advantage in mapping their outcome of their own life, Right. And we know from a lot of research that uh, one of the things that the pill did was it, it, it led to demonstrable boosts in women finishing high school, going to college, finishing college, and entering uh, professions that traditionally they hadn't been part of. And that pushes back the time frame in which they end up getting married. It also interestingly happens to lead to more education for men. 
right? Because if they're not ending up ooh, having a kid with their high school sweetheart and having to be like, well, I got to get a job, they end up going to college more and stuff. So oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah. So there's this this real palpable difference that occurs after that availability of widespread, you know, kind of female-led contraception that that leads to delays in marriage age, more education, people taking more time to to work on a career before they end up settling down. And so the small families that these that generation had are in large part kind of the function of this this shift towards uh, kind of women having more uh, possibilities in the labor force and kind of more control over their their path through the labor force. You know, and then at the same time we had had as they grew up this amazing burst of economic growth led by a lot of material gains. So you got to remember, right? Like the the baby boomers in 1945, there's probably like a third of them grew up without electricity, right? Oh, wow. Right? Like and uh oh, I don't know, I can't remember the number exactly, but maybe a fifth of them didn't have, you know, would have been born into a household that didn't have plumbing. Right, so it's not that long ago. No, that we, had a, a, we were a country that was pretty, pretty rural and pretty. You know, we think that as oh, come on, but <laughs> but yeah, they. So they went from that to right. So they're hitting the labor force late sixties, early seventies, and now they're moving into, you know, they're so whatever you want to knock it or not, but they're suburban ranch houses with plumbing and electricity and you know all that kind of good stuff. And so the they lived to this huge burst in material prosperity. And what we know from from other research is that as people experience those the the higher prosperity and higher wages, what do they do? They have fewer kids. Um, they tend to have fewer kids. They tend to have fewer kids. They tend to invest more in the kids that they have. Right. So now this baby boom generation is thinking to themselves, "Well, I kind of got it made. I do want to build a career. Um, so I'm going to wait to get married. So I'll have time for fewer kids. And when I do have those kids, I don't know that I might even have them as fast. I don't want five. Like maybe they, you know, my parents each each were one of four, right? And then there was just my sister and I, right? And most of my <laughs> most of my family and all this stuff, my cousins, it's all twos, right? Twos and threes. Part of that is, well, if I'm gonna have kids, I want them to go to college like I did. I want them to have these chances like I did. And so all those things are are just a function of being prosperous, right? So we're living with the consequences of a huge generation experiencing a ton of prosperity, taking advantage of it to make choices to get married later, have fewer kids, which led to, oddly, this big kind of demographic, you know, blah now, right? So now they're leaving the labor force and it's, it's not their fault. It's just, a, it's just a, how the numbers work, right? They right. kind of work their way through the system. And and so here we are at this stage with slow growth being driven a ton by the fact that we're just heading towards this world where we have this big kind of cohort of retirees relative to workers. So yeah, the economy's not going to be as dynamic and growing as fast when you keep throw, shedding people out of the workforce and not quite replacing them, just barely replacing them with, with new workers. And that's there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's yeah, the argument in the book. The is it like, well, what's the, what's the problem with that? That's, yeah... It, Okay, so the the growth rate's low today, but it's it's not because somebody did something nefarious or, or made the wrong decision. It's 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 because of the prosperity of the past that led us to the demographics of today, which is part of the reason for slow growth. So, it, to me, it changed my you know when I was working on this, I really like I kept doing the numbers and I kept coming up with that demographic story, and I was like, well, it's so it's so huge in the yeah. numbers. It accounts for almost a whole slowdown. The, the book has to be about that. And then when you start to kind of turn on it, you start to come to this, this realization that it's, I think, a good thing that this, the economy is moving slow. It means we're rich, hmm. right? Uh, and there's a couple other features of the economy, like buying more services rather than goods that have a similar flavor, that it, there are consequences of, of being prosperous. Uh, and it's just we've changed how we we changed how we consume. We changed how we make families, uh, and those were choices. Uh, and so you, it's really hard to knock it for being something wrong. So I guess then the only way to you know necessarily grow at scale because you can't necessarily. I mean, you have a, a child, well, you have to wait for them eighteen years or something. Yeah. I mean, so you know we've heard a lot about over the last four years. Um, don't want to politicize anything, but just you know in regards to the immigration, that's yeah. the only way you can. 
Yeah, get right. to the I, number at scale if you need to. I don't know if you wanted to do it right. So I, I, I bring up at the end of the book and like, well, how do you you know quote solve this problem if you wanted to solve? You know, I'm telling you, I don't think it's a problem to solve. But right. but if you wanted to be like, I really want the growth rate to be higher. Well, even if you started having kids, right? Even if my daughter, I got two high school age daughters. Even if we, I said, yeah, too bad. No college for you guys, despite all the hounding you've gotten over your, you know, the the fifteen or seventeen years uh, uh, that you've been on the planet. Uh, but you should go back, and you should, you know, you should essentially have a life a lot like your great grandmother have. You know, be married by the time you're finished in high school and start having kids. Even if their generation did that, it's gonna be twenty five years before, right? That kind of hits before that workforce hits. It's actually gonna make things grow slower. These all these kids floating around, so. There's no way to do it quickly, kind of naturally, I guess. But if you did want to, the, the fastest and easiest way to reverse it would be immigration, right? Because then you're importing, what are we missing? We're kind of missing workers relative to our population, relative to the past, import the workers. You know, and, and I do some back of the envelope stuff in the book where if you look at current immigration levels, so, so 2018-ish, I think we were taking in about 750,000 immigrants a year, roughly. Right. Um, so the question is, well, so how many... How many, where would you have to get to in order to kind of offset the drag from baby boomers retiring? You'd probably have to get another 750,000, maybe another million in. So we're doubling the current rate of uh, the current flow of immigrants into the country. That'd probably close a lot of that gap and, and, and make it look, you know, the growth rate would go back up if, that's, if that was your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'd be the fastest, easiest way to do it because- Policy-wise, like other little nibbles around the corner, taxes or regulation and stuff, they just don't have this huge bite that people maybe think they do. Right. And so you're just nibbling around it's the edge. Quick fix. Yeah. yeah it's it's like, not even a quick fix. It's, it's a tiny candy. fix, right? Like it's you're going to move the growth rate by hundredths of a percentage point. If you want to move the growth rate, you got to add workers. Right. So with your thinking that mild or slow growth, or you yeah. know, how do you tell a CEO, hey? Pump the brakes. You know, you don't yeah. got to buy this company for twenty-seven billion. You don't have to. Again, I don't know if that's. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I've had you know chatted about this before with re, in relationship to the book, which is, do we need to change our perception of what uh, you know? Does that CEO need to change his perception of what his the future growth of the economy looks like? which changes their perception of what the future is, like growth of revenues or whatever it looks like in a company they're going to acquire or their own company. Yeah, I mean, even just their success metric. I mean, you're always like, you know, told, right. well, you know, I had the company when it was $10 billion and I grew it to I, $80 Right, billion. exactly. I mean, I think, and we've gotten, right, that's very embedded that there's a gro- the growing is the thing, Right. And I think that this, one of the arguments that comes out of the book or one of the implications is, yeah, you've got to maybe come up with a different, you got to downgrade maybe that growth rate as a metric, right? It's not useless, but it definitely is something, you can't just hang everything on it, right? It can't just be growing. I think in the late 20th century, when you've got, again, that flood of baby boomers is startlingly large. It really is, it's hard to overstate how kind of, fundamentally changing that was for the economy. So everything grew. You didn't even almost have to try, right? Like it just scale-wise, <laughs> it's like it's just more people and more workers and more consumption and they're building households and buying durable goods. I mean, it is, you almost had to try to not make money. Well, what happens then if you're on the opposite end of that, right? And so maybe it's not growth. Maybe it's not my company went from, oh, I was a $10 billion revenues to, I, and I grew it to 20 well, you're only gonna you could do your best job you could possibly do, and you're gonna get to eleven, maybe. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> how do you evaluate your success? Right. If it's not through how much I expanded my 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 top line revenues, if we're not gonna evaluate the economy by how fast GDP grew, um, there's other ways, uh, and I don't know exactly what those other ways are. It may be well, how successful I am at taking some market share, uh, how successful I am am I at you know, there's internal metrics at companies that you can use, even if the top line revenue stays the same, right? So, I, but it may take some kind of revision of how people think about about valuing a company to yeah. to get there. Because I think that everybody, like you know, certainly stock market wise, you know, if I buy a stock even for ten dollars and it goes to you know twelve dollars, but then I look at some other stocks and it's like, well, that person bought theirs for ten dollars and now it's twenty dollars. So, I mean. 
I think it almost takes maybe us looking in the mirror and kind of yeah. recalibrating maybe too. Oh yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think one of the things that we need to prepare ourselves for going forward, right, uh, is we're going to have a slow growth economy, right? Pandemic aside, right? Like, let's say we get, you know, it's a year from now, it's, you know, end of 2021, and and, and we're back to kind of where we would have been anyway without the pandemic. Great. That's not going to change the fact that the economy is going to be growing slow for decades, Thanks to these forces, right, and 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 likely there's more forces pushing down on the growth rate over time than are pushing up because of these whole this whole as we get rich we just change how we want to consume and how we want to and how we want to purchase. So how do we all come to the place where we understand that that's not the metric anymore for whether we're being successful? I think it covered up a lot of warts, right? Or it was easy to it was easy to kind of solve issues by getting bigger. Right. Well, we'll make the pie bigger. So the how big your slice, you know, the size of your slice relative to mine wasn't really important. Everybody's getting a bigger piece. Right. If the economy of that pie isn't growing, then the size of the pieces starts to become more of a right, a tangible thing for people to argue about. And and maybe arguably it's it's a long time coming for us to actually argue about how the pie gets sliced up, uh, as yeah. opposed to thinking about how big it is. Yeah, I think definitely some people are certainly starting to Bring that more and yeah, more. I, I mean, I assume you're kind of mentioning the, you know, the income disparity gap. Or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of issues, policy issues. You know, as an economist, when I look at them, I I, I think of them as distribution issues. So it's uh, the question to say uh, healthcare, right? So so people have pitched out ideas for let's do Medicare for everybody or something similar like that, right? Um, and I think that's really just a question about how we slice up the pie, right? Uh, it's it's not really a question about how big the pie is. It's look, we just kind of the economy is big enough to provide healthcare for everybody. Are we going to do that? How do we get there? Right. The 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 ACA was a step that direction. Some people are frustrated with it. Some people think it was the right step. Some people don't think it was far enough. But that kind of discussion. You're talking about the Affordable Care yeah, Act. Yeah, Affordable Care Act. Yeah, the uh, 2009, the Obamacare stuff. Um, and clearly we've been arguing about that for the decade since it's you know been enacted, but it's a real discussion to have, right? About how do how does healthcare get provided across people in the economy? And that's really a distribution question, not really a growth question. I think in the past, a lot of the argument about just using that as an example would have been like, well, well, we don't want to do Medicare for all. What if we did that? And what if uh, that's going to pump the brakes on the growth rate or uh, you know, uh, the pie's not going to get bigger? And I think the a lot of the conclusion that I came to in the book is like the pie's not going to get bigger no matter what you do. I mean, sure, you could torpedo it completely, but you're not going to do that by nibbling around the edges of how we provide healthcare and stuff. It, even though healthcare is a huge industry, fundamentally, what's driving growth are the demographics and the switch towards purchasing services and and a bunch of that stuff that you you aren't going to maneuver by changing how we provide healthcare. Just mm-hmm. as an example. You know, I think the 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 pandemics brought up uh, a lot of questions into the forefront of people's minds about what about unemployment insurance and how it works. What about should there be universal income? Should there be you know like mm-hmm. those questions? And and in some sense, the good part of the pandemic, one tiny little silver line, was it maybe <laughs> it made people think about that stuff in the absence of whether it's affecting the growth rate or not, right? Like long run. Maybe that's not important. Maybe what's important is, is everybody able to survive something like this, right? Like, are, are we able to reach everybody? And so maybe those discussions should be, more, you know, we should bring those up uh, in some sense to the forefront of our mind as opposed to always having the growth rate at the forefront right. of our mind. So we've had a stimulus already sent out yeah. this year. And then, of course, there's been murmurs uh, yeah. since then to do another one. Is that uh, the way the government prints money? Is that increasing the pie or is that a well, slicing I mean, thing? Well, there's a couple things loaded in there, right? So you got to be careful with the the printing money thing. I mean, they're borrowing money. Okay, so let's tackle that, right? Let's tackle the the borrowing money and this idea that maybe it's a, uh, you know, oh, we're mortgaging our future, right? We're we're sacrificing something in the in the future in order to do this. And there's there are times when were you to borrow a bunch of money and and spend it, you would be essentially kind of borrowing from your future, but this isn't it. <laughs> um, there's, you know, we're deep down in the hole. And so let's get out of the hole. I mean, there's, 
the necessary action now is the the costs of the borrowing are are infinitesimally small compared to the benefits of being able to do some relief for people. Why are they infinitesimal? Because interest rates are close to zero. Government can essentially borrow for free at this point because people are scared, because the economy is slowed down. Um, and so take advantage of it and take that free money and use it to get the economy going again. In some sense, the bond market is screaming at the federal government saying, would you please take this money and do something with it? Because we don't, what else are we going to do with it? What are you going to, what are you going to do? Invest in a restaurant? No. What are you going to do? Invest in a commercial real estate? No. <laughs> I don't know. It's uncertain. I'm not clear what's going to happen as an investor. So I'm throwing my mind like, please, for the love of God, take this money and exactly. spend it on something. Yeah. And, and you got to conceive of the fact that it's not that we're not going into debt. The question about whether we do another relief bill at the federal level is who's going to take on the debt. There's a bunch of people out there right now. There's 10 million people that are still unemployed compared to February, 10 to 12 million. Um, those people are falling behind on car payments, falling behind on rent, falling behind on mortgages. Not They're running up credit card debt. They're not taking investments for their future, right? Not going back to school, not doing stuff like that. They're going into debt. So if we do nothing, all we're doing is saying, well, we, we're going to have part of the country go into really deep debt, essentially. Or, or we can take advantage, you know, at high interest rates because they're individuals, all right, and the credit card. Or we could absorb that kind of onto the books of us as a whole at really cheap interest rates and pay it off over in the next 50 years and kind of get ourselves out of this without forcing some small fraction of the, the population to absorb essentially this big hit. So the, this idea that we're borrowing from our future, we are borrowing from, borrowing from we are borrowing money. Someone's going to borrow it. <laughs> so it might as well be us as a whole at the federal level for really good rates as opposed to individuals having to kind of claw and scrap and trying to, to figure this out. In regards to the stimulus and what you're talking about in regards to inflation, is that uh, part of your... Yeah, so I mean, so one of the, the common, you know, worries, it's like, oh, if we're going to borrow this money, the federal government's going to borrow this money and it's going to lead to inflation. Um, for sure, it's plausible that if the federal government borrows enough money and the Federal Reserve monetizes it and is utterly and completely irresponsible about how it deals with that, yeah, there could be inflation, right? You can go back a couple historical examples of countries that kind of tried to literally print their, print their way out of, out of some debt. But there's a handful of those examples, not a million, and you have to believe in the fundamental inability of the Federal Reserve to, to know what they're doing. And that's not the case. They haven't demonstrated that uh, in any case, right? So it's really a question of people worried about massive inflation resulting in this. We're also worried about massive inflation after the stimulus bill in 2009 and the quantitative easing and all, all of that. And are, have been fantastically wrong about that for, for the 10 years since then. To the point that the Fed has trouble getting inflation up to 2%. Like, our problem in this country is not that we have inflation. Our problem is, in some sense, that inflation's too low because it doesn't leave the Fed a lot of room mm-hmm. to act, right? They, right? It'd be better if they had some room to go down and up, but they have no room to go down, really. They, they can only go up. So that, that kind of worry is, is, is one of these tail risk things. They're like, I guess if Jerome Powell started doing LSD... <laughs> Maybe a couple, you know, maybe they'd screw this up so bad, (laughs) maybe, that they literally turned on the money printers, which they can't do anyway, legally. And, you know, like there's a whole bunch of hoops you got to jump through to get to this story of mass mass inflation resulting from this debt. And I guess uh, we have the nominee uh, chair, uh, Yellen, I guess she uh, seems to, what does she think about inflation? I, no, I think she's a she's a really excellent choice. Um, I mean, she's a she was chair of the Fed. I mean, she's an exceptional economist and real thoughtful. Um, I think she's got a realistic look at at the the relationship between the federal government and its spending and the Federal Reserve, which manages interest rates uh, and the economy, and understands the 
that it's it's doing LSD that would get us mass inflation and stuff, right? <laughs> I'm, just I'm willing to bet that, that, that Janet Yellen has not done, you know, acid or LSD and won't. You know, I think she's very conscious of that, right? They, I guess what I think, you know, I think what happens a lot is that people uh, confuse kind of some different roles at the, the, the federal government level, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Treasury Department, as a, they coordinate, but they're not the same thing. And so I think people confuse them into one giant, one giant lump and say, well, the only way for the government to spend all this extra money is literally to print it. And that's not how that works, right? So Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, let's say they pass a, another relief bill, right? Tomorrow, Mitch McConnell wakes up tomorrow morning and decides that, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Uh, so let's, it's another 900 billion. Well, where does that money come from, right? So you ask, yeah. like, well, where do they, okay, so they're going to spend $900 billion. They don't, there's no printer that just got turned on when they, when they do that. What are they going to do? That says, they're telling, in this case, Mnuchin or, or Yellen as we get into the new year, um, saying like, look, you're authorized to go borrow $900 billion, right? So you can issue some treasury bonds out in the market for $900 billion, and so that's where the treasury shows up to the, all these people. I said, we're screaming, like, please take our money. And they say, okay, I'll take it. Here, here's this slip of paper that says, I'll pay you back over the next 30 years at this terribly low interest rate. And like, okay, here's my cash. Take it, spend it. Okay, that's where they get the money from. They borrow it from outstanding investors. Now, one of those possible investors that could do that is the Federal Reserve, Right. Jerome Powell, somebody else over here, could come in and say, we as the Federal Reserve Bank, we'll buy some of those. And we'll give you some of the cash that we have. And we'll take those treasury bonds onto our books. Okay, perfectly legal thing to do. It's how they manage interest rates, right? So the Fed will buy and sell those treasury, will buy those treasury bonds if they're worried that essentially maybe not enough other people are. They're like, ooh, we want the interest rate to stay low. So we're going to generate a lot of demand, right, for those bonds. So they'll be doing that? Yep. So it's not the case that we're printing money. It's where what we're trying to do is suck money out there that, like I said, it's sitting there kind of, if you'd like, under someone's mattress. Because they're <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with this, right? I don't want to invest in a commercial real estate lot anymore because I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't want to, I'm not going to put my money behind these restaurant ideas because God knows whether they're coming back. And I don't know. Right. I don't want to, you know, I don't know what to do with it, right? I don't know what to do with it because I'm uncertain about the economy and all this stuff. So, but I do want some safety and I would rather not have it sitting under my mattress. I like to earn something. Right. right. Treasury bonds, liquid, easy to trade, pay some interest. Here, give me the treasury bond, I'll give you my cash. That's really what we're doing. We're trying to pull cash that's sitting there idle out of those mattresses and spend it on something. Right. right? Federal government sends it out and in this case, most of it would be Federal government gets it, sends it. Maybe it's a check to you and me. Maybe it's unemployment insurance, so it's checks to people who are unemployed. Maybe it's state and local grants. But essentially, here's all that cash we pulled out from mattresses. Here, you guys take it, and now do whatever you're going to do. right? And for a bunch of people who get unemployed insurance, it's I'm going to make my credit card bill. I'm going to pay the car payment. I'm going to pay rent. Uh, maybe for you and me, it's, uh, you know, maybe I... I put it in my my daughter's you know college savings fund. If I get a check, I'm like we're we're fortunate to be doing doing fine. So right. I'm like okay, I don't need to buy it. But maybe it's uh, state and local governments. This is I think is an important one. It's I'm not going to fire a bunch of teachers or firemen or policemen. I'm going to keep everybody employed. Yeah, that'd be nice. right and keep the, yeah exactly right. So this is the cash is there, but it's hiding under the mattresses. Uh, and normally it would come out and get spent on stuff and cycle through and, and kind of keep everything moving, but it's not. And so this is the, the role of a relief bill like this is to suck that cash out and put it back out into circulation. I guess it just seems like going back to that yeah. mindset that maybe all of us need to kind of recalibrate yeah. is if I don't have to, you know, if I'm not judged on necessarily how much I'm growing or the company's yeah. growing, maybe it de-incentivizes the risk-taking. yeah. No, I mean, I think there is, yeah, I think in, the, in that long run sense, I think there is something to that, which is that it, uh, there may be the sense that maybe people are not taking the financial risks that maybe led to something like the financial crisis, right? right? Like maybe, uh, maybe that urge or that need, yeah, 
No, I, th- I see your point, and I think that is a good one, right? Like maybe I don't feel that need to chase that yield or chase that return so hard that I take risks that are going to lead to big problems, right? So yeah, there could be. I mean, I think there's people who've who've looked at way we do innovation and what we study from this kind of similar perspective, which is as you get rich, are you less willing to to undertake innovation that might have big downsides, right? That might, I, so the paper I'm thinking of, which is an interesting one, but the example is, would you undertake uh, certain biological research if, if you thought it might unleash a pandemic? So oddly enough, <laughs> clearly written before 2020. Um, but that was the kind of thinking like, oh, is it, if we're already kind of rich, is it worth undertaking uh, research on a, on a potential drug if you might unleash a pandemic like this? I see what you're saying. Right? Yeah. And, but I think that's to your same point, right? Like, is it worth trying to jack up the quarterly growth at my firm if I'm taking on this huge risk that maybe this trade we're, we're affecting goes really south, right? Yeah, maybe people think about that less, or maybe that means that we look at economic activities on firms and think harder about what risks they're taking. Uh, you know, and I think some of that happened after the financial crisis. Like, whoa, maybe we don't want you doing that kind of stuff, right? Like, maybe that's great that you generated a lot of profits and bonuses. And if I was invested in those, you know, those those investment banks, maybe I was making money. But, but wow, is is that the kind of risk we want? As every whatever a couple of decades, we want to go through this? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. If I'm a chair of the S and P 500, yeah. and I read your book. Would I maybe think twice about having Tesla a uh, loss, you know, to move my needle? I, I mean, what do you think about all of that? I, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm sure on whatever metrics they would actually they they use, Tesla makes sense, right? Because it's it's gotten huge. But didn't I see this? Isn't like Tesla's market value higher than every other car maker combined at this point, or something? That is like what that? I heard too. Yeah, yeah. they are one percent of the market. Yeah, but yet. Their yeah market yeah. value. Is, I, thought, yeah. I thought all the other car makers or something. Yeah, I, right. It feels like really <laughs> is that can that be right? Like I think DoorDash just did their IPO as well, and some you know. Well, they yeah they valued it internally. They valued themselves at sixteen billion. And what did and they I think end up that after like, they went IPO, I think it got up to sixty seven. That's billion. right. I th- yeah, I knew it was like a big. It was way yeah. more than I think internally valued, and and that's a company that has never made a dollar. No. Right? They have burned cash. They literally <laughs> almost burn cash just because. So and I think there's, there's an element of investing that people are chasing growth, right? Like kind of that, that venture capital thing that was like, just if you just grow fast enough, right? Like that's worth it. That does seem like, but that's, you're not actually what are you, investing in anything. Like you're just hoping that somebody else will come along and and yeah. maybe buy it after you. So yeah, I think there is a an element that maybe the the chair of the S and P hopefully will read the book and be like, um, <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe this number seems weird to me. But <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, Tesla is fascinating because I mean, I think there is this sense that 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 market is gonna that's going to be the market for cars in 20 years, right? Is electric yeah, cars. Yeah, I mean, maybe look it's at, Amazon. They're just yeah, playing that long game. Right, like, and they've been at the forefront of it, so they've got the brand, they've got the, the technology, and we know that firm by firm, there's tons of learning by doing. Like, you could, you and I could go out tomorrow and try and start an electric car company, but, right? Like, it was going to be some yeah, it's hurdles. It's going to be a long time before we catch up to where <laughs> Tesla is, so... You know, battery costs have come down ridiculously. I think Toyota just announced that they have some battery that they're going to have in production in a couple of years that's like 500 miles on a charge. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's great. So this is financial markets, right? Like maybe yeah. Tesla is honestly valued. And if you knew, right, like you'd be, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing this. We'd be, no, you know, we, no, yeah. We we, or we'd be doing you. this from a tropical oh. island somewhere that we owned. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that is, I mean, but I think that gets back to an interesting question is like, what are we valuing in financial markets? Are you valuing the potential for growth so that you can sell this stock to somebody else? Or are you investing in a company because it's producing something of worth and making, making money, right? In your research, um, is there a turning point where taxes become such a bear, such a, a negative in the sense? And I guess to give you more context yeah. to, on that question would be, you know, let's say we've got 10 companies mm-hmm. uh, and they're all 
you know, contributing at 30% tax rate or whatever yep. it is, let's say. And so they're, you know, $3 million collectively, right. those companies in that sector. Right. Uh, through the years, now there's, you know, two or three players and then uh, they've grown. So, you know, they're paying more. Yep. Uh, and now individually they're paying, let's, let's just say that they don't grow and they're, they're still paying that $3 million. Yeah. But now to them individually, they're paying a million each. Mm-hmm. As opposed when there was 10 people in the sector, maybe they were paying whatever. Right. Um, so now these companies are saying, well, we pay a ton in taxes. We pay a million dollars in taxes. But on aggregate, they're paying what the sector should be right. paying. So why is it that they, I mean, is that more of a societal question or? Well, I mean. Uh, I know we're not right. rational. Like, nobody wants to. But I don't think it's irrational to not want to pay taxes, right? Right. Like, nobody wants it, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, everybody would prefer to pay less. You know, that those companies, if they, essentially if that, you know, it was 10 companies, now it's three because they all acquired each other and stuff, and, and they're bigger, and they're still paying, and, you know, if the tax rate is not any different, then it's hard to get real upset about it. You're like, your tax rate's the same as it before, right? Like, right. it's, you purchased a bunch of other companies, so you're, yeah, I get it. It's makes you feel weird to write a check with that many zeros on it, but your company has that many extra zeros on the the back because end. Because of the of your, sales, yeah, because yeah, of the sales. Been doing well, so you know that that's hard to, to you know to really weep for that situation. You know, I think a lot of the the argument about taxes comes down to the rate, right? Like, so that's that question is like, if it was ten of those companies and there's three left, but they're all the same size they used to be, right? And you're coming after them for a million dollars each, then you can see where they're like, whoa, I used to pay $300,000 or whatever it was. And now we're paying a million, but our revenues are the same. Our profits are the same. So that rate feels like a lot higher, right? You're taking a bigger chunk. Then then you get into these questions of like, whoa, what, what are we doing with the tax rate? Are we incenting or disincenting certain behavior? And that could be one of those situations where you've pushed a company to be like, it's not worth running anymore, right? And then you get into this whole Good question. This applies to people as well as companies. Like, what are those? Ta- what is the tax rate you get to at which which people are like, well, forget it. It's not worth it, right? And there's a lot of evidence. So on the personal side, there are a lot of evidence that that tax rate before people say drop out of the labor force is way higher than our average tax rate. All right, like so that depending on who you ask, you could get somewhere a number between fifty five and eighty percent top marginal tax rates before people would really actually be like, you know what, screw it, I'm done. Because we have tons of evidence from, from when different countries and from within the U.S. when tax rates changed, people still went to work. <laughs> they didn't, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's annoying, right? You, you, ah, I don't want to pay more in taxes, but it's really hard to come up with a plausible story about why Bill Gates would be like, you know, screw it, I'm, not, I'm, I'm closing Microsoft down because you raised the top marginal tax rate from 35 to 39%. I don't know. Like, yeah. I guess maybe there's somebody out there that, that that was important, but it's we just don't see it in the data, right? Companies wise, I think they're what I think you see with companies is it's not so much that it changes whether they decide to operate or not, but if you start jacking up a corporate tax rate, what you you find they're going to spend a lot of money on trying to find ways to get around it. Ah, oh, if we oh, we're going to change our headquarters to this state, or we're going to change Ireland, our headquarters yeah, to Ireland, to or, yeah. I mean, and they found like the larger companies have the resources to do that and are able to move their money out of those taxing jurisdictions. So, so do you as a as a government do you lose that tax revenue? Yeah. Is it because the company's shutting down? No, it's because they've moved it. They moved around your rules. That seems to happen a lot. So I think it. You know, when we talk about tax rates, there's there's those kind of two dimensions. There's the rate, which I think. Actually, is less important, and then there's the structure, right? Like, right. can you avoid it, and how easy is it to avoid it? Because people will avoid for sure; they'll they'll find yeah. ways around. But I've seen even in the pandemic this year that companies. Uh, there's somebody that I follow, Simon Sinek. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He does yeah, the the why. He's all about okay. asking why, and he was really a big advocate for companies to say, "Hey, don't just cut your employees to make your numbers." Yeah, you know. Um, maybe you position it, hey, we're all going to take a pay cut yeah. so everybody can stay yeah. up. And I definitely saw a lot of that personally and then yeah. also just around me. And I wonder what would need to change for CEOs to not yeah. look at the tax rate as such a, a demon. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple points that you raised in there, right? Like I think we. what's interesting is I think you see this like, what do you want to call it, sharing of that burden 
the smaller the company, it seems like the more sharing went on. Like you hear a lot of, at least anecdotally, it's a lot of stories about local restaurant guarantees that they're, you know, we're going to keep our wait staff on all at 50% uh, so they can, you know, keep paying the rent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're clearly eating it as owners, right, as, as well. But it feels like you don't hear that, right, from no. Amazon. <laughs> like the guy. do not, you feel especially like when feel, you see what he's done in, from right. his personal wealth from March to now. Right. And so the, this idea that, I mean, I think that, that's just kind of this, this, that's not really a tax question. That's a, what is the purpose, right? Like, what is the role that a CEO of a company feels that they play? What is their relationship that they feel to their employees? And, you know, in a very stark sense, those are, they're free agent workers and they're, they're other inputs to the production line. And if they want to negotiate something different or better, then all right, let them. And if they can't, they can't. Uh, so, and I think that is a very embedded attitude about how business operates and how it should operate, mm. right? I think we kind of late twentieth century very much made that that seemed to become the yeah, it's a market man, and this is how it works. So, the company needs to be doing the best they can. I mean, and 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 then one of the defenses of that is you look at Jeff Bezos, right? You're like, oh my god, like he's made billions upon billions of dollars. He's also hired. Was it four hundred thousand people this year? It is pretty unreal. Right, yeah. so the the wages didn't go up necessarily, but I mean, he absorbed a huge fraction of the the, the actual loss in jobs by employing people at Amazon and and provided a service that we all all of a sudden took advantage of. <laughs> I mean, I, I think probably have two. I mean, especially it's the holidays. I don't know, there must be like three delivery <laughs> trucks past our house every day, dropping stuff off, right? And and so. Th- that's the reward in some sense for providing this, this incredible platform that brings stuff to your house sometimes the same day that you order it. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That is right? So, And this, we've got this tension, which is you want to reward that, right? Like the, the, I don't think Bezos got into Amazon because he was like, I want $86 billion, but he definitely wanted to be rich, right? Like that, and we can argue about whether that seems unfair that he's got that much, but it's, you know, without rewards for that kind of innovative behavior, it doesn't happen. Right. At the same time, you want to incent that innovation. Do we feel like that a company like Amazon has an obligation to the people that work with them? The existing employees, the new 400,000 in addition, do they, have, do they take on some responsibility when they become part of the Amazon family, so to speak, right? Do they... I think we don't think of it, uh, very often the businesses don't think of it that way, and maybe we've kind of all gotten on board with that, but I don't think that's necessary, right? Like that's not necessarily the way that it has to be. The companies may view those employees more as, sounds corny, but as actual people with lives and stuff and feel some, some obligation to them, especially in a situation maybe like this with the pandemic. Like, whoa, this is, this is out of bounds from an economic situation, right? This is not a, oh, there's a small fluctuation. This is a, right. this is a financial situation. No, this is, my God, people are dying. Like, let's kind of close ranks and let's take care of these people. I think there's a legit moral question for corporations. It's like, what is your obligation to the people who work for you? Is it just... You treat them as if you the same way you treat the materials that you use to build stuff. It's no different than a pile of lumber. That's hard to swallow, right? Well, it almost seems though that I think maybe there's some inkling that they are kind of doing what you're saying, that they are kind of taking care of their employees in the sense that when they come into new places, they build schools, but those schools are kind of right around where their employees are maybe as opposed to maybe in a lower development area. So it kind of becomes an interesting hierarchy yeah. Where again, if that money went to a city or something, then maybe yeah. it would go to no. Uh, and I, I, I think the there's exactly. I think there's been a lot of discussion about that, which is that's wonderful that Jeff Bezos says built a school and maybe maybe in the neighborhood where the warehouse, the yeah, Amazon warehouse is. It's great, you know. Rather than waiting or relying on Jeff Bezos, why don't we have Jeff Bezos pay taxes and and build schools all over the place and. Rather than waiting and hoping that that these people who've accumulated that wealth will do the quote right thing, why don't we do taxes, right? You know, uh, um, and I think there's an argument for that, right? There's there's for sure an element that you want those incentives for innovation to occur, right? You want someone to look at it and be like, man, if I could start the next Amazon, I could be a billionaire too, right? <laughs> 
that's why all those people want to start, you know, want to start a company, want to do this, want to do that. That's why the students come to college, right? Like they want to do better, right? So there has to be some incentive out there, but but I think there's a legit argument to be had about what kind of fraction of that, of that, uh, the profits or the take-home money that that Jeff Bezos has got, is in fact due to him innovating and it's kind of legitimately right. We think well, that's fair, right? That's fair. He came up with the idea. He runs that company, works his tail off. He's he drove this. It's the Elon Musk thing. He started all these companies, right? Like they deserve to be wealthy, right? Like they deserve to be paid off for that. How much of their wealth is is that deserved part, and and how much of it is based on the fact that they're fortunate enough to live in a country that has this big of a market and this functional of a of a, an economy that they can sell that much to, right? So Jeff Bezos has this wonderful platform without three hundred million people to sell to. It's not worth very much. Right, it's great. If you give Jeff Bezos a server and all of his software and put him on a an island by himself, it's not going to do him any good, right? So there's there's a sense that those uh, a company like Amazon is embedded in an economy that has the scale to support a company like Amazon. And without that, there's a reason Amazon got started here. Let's put it that way, and not in Malawi, right? And so. Is there, I think there's a legit argument to say, look, some of the benefits that have accrued just to Jeff Bezos could rightly be said to have accrued to the economy, us as a whole society, right? Mm -hmm. Because without us as a whole, without this pool of workers, without this pool of customers, without functioning roads and a court system and all the structure that goes into this, without that, you don't have a company. You don't have a market. That's an interesting thought. Right? So... So there's no right answer. Right? There's not a mathematical formula you can write down to say, well, here's how you would divide up, <laughs> yeah, divide yeah. up the profits. But, right. but it's not 100% to Bezos necessarily, right? And nor is it 0% to Bezos, right? There's a number in the middle mm-hmm. that maybe should be higher than, you know, lower than 100% to Bezos because this, our society, our economy is, is, is responsible in part for his success. But I don't know what that number is, unfortunately. Yeah, and no, I like that. It's well put. So we're hearing a lot about uh, student loan debt is coming up. Yeah. We're at $1.7 trillion. Yeah. Um, that certainly keeps growing, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, do you uh, have any thoughts around the best way to approach that or how do we? Yeah, I, right. It's an interesting question. In a sense, right, like uh, just kind of debt forgiveness in general. Yeah, I saw Bono do it. He seemed to have pretty good success. Yeah, with right. That. I mean, I feel like we went through uh, right, like <laughs> late '80s, '90s. There was a big, you know, a move for having debt jubilees for uh, developing countries, mm-hmm. right? Like, kind of, the, there was a big debt crisis in the '80s in a lot of developing countries, and Pope was involved, right? Bono yeah. gets engaged. In this. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and this is, uh, and what's interesting, you, right? Back historically, right? This is a very, it's not frequent, but it's not a not an uncommon thing for popes, kings, various people to, to do kind of debt jubilees. Like, you know, and I think, you know, and then you kind of think about, well, what's the motivation for that, right? Like, well, these are, these are adults. They took out a loan, right? And you took out a loan. If you didn't want to take out, you didn't want to pay it back, you shouldn't have paid it. You know, you shouldn't have taken out the loan. Um, but I think there is a sense where for the student debt side in particular, that I think there is a sense that we lobbied hard for these students to take out these kinds of debts, right? Like we'll do it in class. We'll do, you know, over at U of H, we'll, U of H will tell them, this is why your student loan is worth it. You're going to make X dollars more on average. And that's the part we'd ever bother to, I think, get to tell them specifically, which is on average, you're going to earn more. Not all of you are going to earn more, right? There's a distribution of outcomes as those kids leave U of H or whatever. HCC or an online school, right? They took out loans to go to. Yes, on average, those loans pay for education, which should raise their wage. But not every kid does. Some of them do really well. Some of them can't get into that profession that they thought they would or just can't get started or had the misfortune to enter the workforce in 2009 or 10 and couldn't get their careers started. And we know that has long-lasting effects. This year's going to be the same, right? We're going to be kids that are supposed to graduate, graduated this spring or even this coming spring are going to be digging out of a hole for a while. So I think there is a scope to, to argue that, yeah, it wasn't, 
on an individual by individual basis, this wasn't the payoff that they were promised, that they were told that, that, that should be there. Yeah, I don't know if promised is the right word. And so I think there is scope for thinking, yeah, there's, there's reasons to, to forgive some of this, a bunch of it, some a number below, some certain dollar amount might be a real more palatable. Yeah, I think there's a scope for it. I, one of the, the, the reasons I think that debt forgiveness is on the table is because I think it, it has this advantage of targeting a very specific, tar- being targeted well, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Which is that there are lots of people that have student debt, and most people that have student debt have relatively small amounts. They went to HCC and they took a couple courses, so they've got $3,000 that they have to pay off, or five, maybe 10. It's not someone who went to law school and has got $300,000 of debt. There's a handful of people that have a lot of debt from school, surgeons, lawyers, oh, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff. That's not kind of who this is. You know, if you wiped it all out, that would, it would hit them. I think the proposals you see, like, let's wipe out anybody whose balance is below 10000 or below 20000 You've got a huge swath of people that I think maybe fell in these holes where we kind of, oh, no, borrow the money, get the education. It'll pay for itself in the higher wage. And a lot of people it did, but not everybody. And these guys maybe are struggling. They're the kind of people that might, st- they couldn't get into that profession and now they're working as a waiter. And what just happened? Well, they just got laid off. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't think right? about that. And, yeah, they're, you know, and now yeah. I'm trying to pay my college loan back working at a Taco Cabana, right? Like it's, it didn't pan out the way that it was supposed to. And so I think for those, those groups, it can be a, a much more valuable, I think it's worth it, right? And I think you can make the case for it. I mean, I think it, if you kind of back up, it, it, people have argued for a while that you know, maybe student loan repayment should be income-based, right? If you do better, you should pay back more, right? There'd be kind of a graduated payback. And I think some schools have, have done this, right? I think there's a, some schools that offer you a loan that is contingent on your future income. Oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah. And if that was the case, then you, I think it'd be harder to argue for the forgiveness. You'd be like, well, but, but if you still have all that debt, well, then you clearly made some poor financial choices, right? right? Uh, but I think in this case, it's a lot of people that, I think it's a lot of people that, that we as a society told them, you should do this, you absolutely should do this, it'll pay off, and it didn't. Right. What about uh, as you, know, you go to college, like you're saying, when they're talking to people, why has it always been in the sense that it's credit for credit? So if I go into basket weaving, mm-hmm. I pay the same yeah. hour credit versus somebody yeah. that's going to be a finance major right. or something like that. Is that back to the equality thing, or is that just what? Uh, I think that, right. No, I think there's some inertia, right? I think we've traditionally most colleges operated on something like that, but not quite. I mean, if you go to Bauer over at U of H, it costs more than it if you you know major in English. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't there's, realize there's that. Okay, great. But they're not huge, right? right? But, but it's, uh, it's becoming a movement, or it just happened. Uh, so the different colleges. So the U of H is probably a pretty reasonable example of how like a big state school would work is that the different colleges there, so Bauer is a different college than liberal arts and sciences, which is own college. They have some power, some, to levy some charges on top of kind of the base tuition, if you'd like. Okay. Right. So, so there is variation. Is it equivalent to maybe projected incomes of the different groups? Probably not. You're probably paying a lot for a basket weaving class relative to the accounting class, right? So the accounting class probably has a bigger market return for you. Uh, the basket weaving has very little, but uh, you're probably paying a lot for the basket, close to the accounting class. Yeah, and, and some schools maybe effectively get around this by not offering some of those classes or not offering certain majors. But I think there is a sense within a university, traditionally, that, that we're not here to... And I think there's, there's value to this view, which is that our purpose as a university is not to train workers. It's not to get you a job. The purpose of university is to expand your mind, open you up to new knowledge, give you uh, tools to continue to learn as you go forward in life. And that the purpose is not to make you employable or to give you an occupation. But I think there's tension, right? Because it is effectively now the entry to occupations. It does seem like that's been the bargain, though. Hey, I'm right. going to pay X amount for tuition, yeah. get this stuff, I expect to get a job. We've, intentionally or not, I think universities, we've absorbed that as a role. And maybe by accident, maybe without even knowing it or thinking about it real hard, we absorb that. And so you certainly get 
people's expectation is that we would, yeah, but I came here and I should be able to get a good job and I took out this loan. And so what am I taking here? What classes should I take in order to get this good job? And that, and that is some tension which I, with some of the purpose of a university. And I don't think we've, re- we certainly haven't reconciled it yet. I think as a whole, right? As, as, as higher education as a whole, I don't think we've figured out what our, how to reconcile those two things. Because I think one of the, one of the ways of reconciling it is scary, very scary. And what is it? Which is to split the school up, right? Which is to to have schools, is to throw it open and be like, well, fine, right? If you want to come expand your mind, if we want to do that stuff, that has to be a very different economic model, and it's not going to be oh, probably not as you know lucrative or as it's not maybe going to be what faculty and administration want their jobs and their lives to look like. And it's scary in the sense that maybe nobody wants to come and get that kind of education, right? Maybe the, what people want is the, the occupational training. And that if you have this, oh, we're going to teach you how to, to think and everything, that that turns out to not be big enough to support. I think that's a scary outcome that, that is in the realm of possibilities if you really rethink the, the, the role of a university. Awesome. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss or share that we didn't uh, necessarily talk about. I definitely want to tell everybody about Fully Grown, why a stagnant economy is a sign of success. Definitely try to pick that up. And uh, yeah. yeah, no, I think, uh, no, we were all over the place. Yeah. Uh, got, to, got me to babble quite a bit, which I like to do about these topics. So Awesome. Yeah, uh, well, that's I what I love great. about the format. Yeah, that it's not just sound yeah. bites. It's really kind of thoughtful stuff. And yeah, uh, definitely appreciate what uh, the research that you're doing and your team's doing. Oh, great. I really appreciate being on, uh, like I said, to get to babble about this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's fun trying to think about writing the book was interesting because it, it you know, there's the, the academic side and there's the teaching side, but really trying to think about how to express some of these things to a not focused audience in the sense like my students, maybe even undergrads, they have to pay it. They have to listen <laughs> if they want to do okay. <laughs> But to how how do you how do you take this and, and, and make some of these points more broadly is is hard <laughs> actually yeah. right it's it's hard so so getting to do this kind of thing is really I find it's become really valuable for me to wonderful think about whether I actually know what I'm talking about well from the uh, hour and a half or so that we've been talking I think you definitely know what you're talking about see. Um, are there any uh, socials or anything that you wanted to share I don't know how. We always try uh, to give you, everybody the yes. social media chance. Um, you can find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Dietz Volrath. Okay. Um, and you want to spell that? Yeah. Uh, so it's at D like dog, I-E-T-Z like zebra, V like Victor, O-L-L-R-A-T-H. If you find it, it's a little picture of Ernie from Sesame Street. That's my avatar. So if you find <laughs> that, you got me. Uh, you can also find me, I I. I don't write nearly as often as I, I used to, but uh, if you go to www.growthecon.com, I do a blog, uh, a lot nice. of these topics occasionally. I just threw one out there actually the other day, and you can find a link to the book and some other stuff. Uh, it's a lot of resources there. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I definitely recommend everybody to do that. And then I guess if somebody was a senior in high school, yeah. um, what would you uh, recommend to them in regards to looking at uh, economics as a... Uh, career path or certainly a course that they might want to take. Yeah. I'm, so I, I like a lot of economists. I think it's a really, I think it's a really great major for thinking about all sorts of topics. Right. So I, I, I think the, the thing to tell someone is a, a lot of, a lot of students, my daughters, in fact, we're just, we've been talking about this cause there's a, an economics class at their, at their high school. Oh, nice. And the thing they always want to explain to people is that like, it's not just interest rates. Uh, or the stock market, right? We study, so if you come to the U of H, you go look at the econ department at U of H, we've got people that that study, um, that do field experiments in Africa, uh, studying oh, wow. um, how information about HIV prevalence affects people's behavior uh, and their, whether they catch the disease or not. And, and therefore, what kind of interventions are successful in preventing the spread of HIV. So you got people that do that. We've got people that do development work in China that study uh, gender differences uh, in different areas of China and their effect on risk-taking and, uh, and whether farmers adopt new technologies. We've got people that do interest rate stuff. <laughs> We've got people that do exchange <laughs> rates. We got that. that. We got that. Yeah, that covered. Uh, international trade. We've got people that do political economy and think about why bureaucrats act the way that they do. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's a whole um, other topic. I'd love to have you back right, on. Like it's, uh, 
I mean, econ gives you a, a structure of, it helps you formalize thinking a little, just kind of like, just trying to make things abstract. And also a bunch of, of tools for evaluating data that I think are incredibly valuable. So whatever the topic you're interested in, I think an econ major is valuable for thinking about it just because it gives you a, some structure for how to think about data and how to, how to kind, of, kind of slim down questions to the point that you can kind of get your head around. That's good. It's definitely, I mean, everything is economics, for sure. I mean, we it all think comes so. Into... We all think so in our department. Of course we do. I know it <laughs> drives course. other people nuts, but yeah, we think ultimately there's always something there. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thanks again so much awesome, for uh, being you. on the show. Appreciate it. Hope you have a great holiday. Yeah. Well, you too. Have a great holiday, and I'll be I'll, I'll be listening and uh, and keep it up on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Volrath, for closing out our 2020 podcast season. Please be sure to check out Dr. Volrath's book, Fully Grown: Why Stagnant Economy Is a Sign of Success. Definitely worth a read. We wish everyone a wonderful holiday, and as we close out 2020, Olson and I wish you a prosperous and mindful 2021. See you back here January 13th.